Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, advocacy, and reform. I'm your host, Vinkidia Gardner. Thank you for joining me today. So, on today's episode, we will be talking about reentry and health. And exactly what that means is like trying to get a better understanding of health and its relationship to incarceration and reentry. Um, health is a very broad topic, so we'll be really focusing on overall general health and uh, talking about, you know, physical health, but we'll also be talking about mental health, but we won't dive too much into mental health, um, just kind of sticking very broad. But I have an amazing guest here with me today. Um, her name is Dr. Chantel Fahmy. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Um, she has her PhD in criminology and criminal justice from Arizona State University, and her research focuses on reentry and reintegration from prison, um, specifically looking at, you know, health criminology, social support, and health-related consequences of incarceration. A lot of her work has been published in the Criminal Justice and Behavior Journal, the Journal of Adolescent Health, Social Science and Medicine, and even the Journal of Quantitative Criminology. So I really want to welcome her onto More Life uh, to kind of dive into this discussion with us. So without further ado, Dr. Fahmy, here you go. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I will say I'm really excited to see what you end up doing. I mean, I know you've been working on it, but this podcast is really cool. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course, always. Um, so as always, guests, we're going to jump right into our topic, um, this talking about reentry and health. And, and one of the things I guess like I'll start off with is just, just as involved individuals, they, they have very high health care needs and they are in a greater prevalence of diagnosis. So I think it's very important for us to start with kind of talking about what are these health trends and like the, the just general health status of returning citizens and things like that. So Dr. Fahmy, would you like to start there um, and proceed with the conversation? Sure. Um, so just to kind of give you, I guess like a, a general profile um, of people who are leaving prison and what their health really looks like. I mean, you name it, they have it worse than the general population or what we always say is the general population. I mean, their tuberculosis status, infectious disease, all the infectious diseases, all the chronic conditions, disabilities. I mean, it's just much more elevated in populations that have been exposed to incarceration. For instance, tuberculosis, 25% in the incarcerated population, and that's about six to 10 times higher than the general population. 17% have hepatitis C compared to 2% of the general population. Even HIV and AIDS, um, 1.5 to 2% are HIV positive compared to nearly 0% of the population outside. Um, I will say that certain infectious diseases like hepatitis C and HIV have been declining since the 2000s, but it's still a problem, it's still a thing. Um, in terms of chronic conditions, Hypertension, they, about 30% of them have hypertension. That's not shocking given what incarceration does to the body. Um, asthma, 9%, diabetes, 6%, obesity and related you know, issues with being overweight, 74%. Even when we're talking about disabilities, you have at least 32% who say that they have at least one disability and that's 
nearly three times more the non-incarcerated population. And then when you're talking about older prisoners, that number is higher even more. I mean, nearly half of older prisoners have a disability. So, I mean, I can continue to keep going with this in this area, but it's particular and, and STDs, right? Um, but it's particularly these rates are elevated in, in prison populations, not only for stuff that was occurring before incarceration, but things that are occurring during incarceration. Um, so things like the factors that end up making that population look different than the general population, poor access to healthcare, sexual behaviors that may be risky, unsanitary conditions in impoverished neighborhoods before going to prison, shared IV drug use in prison and before that, shared personal hygiene items while they're incarcerated, overcrowded living spaces, right? I mean, there's just so many things that have created a space where the people that end up incarcerated are hailing from communities that they didn't really have a chance, right? Like they, it, it's a structural problem at the outset. And then when they get incarcerated and then now we're talking about release, people quickly point the finger that it's an individual level problem, but not when, not when its origins are structural, you know? Um, so I think that answered your question about just kind of what their health profile looks like. Yeah, it does. And I really liked how you made that comparison between um, incarcerated individuals and formerly incarcerated in like general population. I think that's a very good distinction to make of to kind of explain and not even explain, but emphasize the greater prevalence of these mental health concerns. I mean, well, diagnoses or uh, just healthcare needs like it's incarceration exacerbates health already pre-existing um, health concerns and then I, I don't know it's just a it's a it's a lot to take in and um, I don't know I really like the comparisons that you were doing there as well as you you touched on why just as involved individuals are impacted like because of these risky behaviors or just like the type of lifestyles that they may have lived before or like I said just having like already pre-existing health conditions that maybe have worsened once they were incarcerated um, and it seems like there's a lot there's a lot there that is going into there um, so I was wondering if you could just you know going off of that and like could you just talk to us a little bit more just about maybe briefly about how substance use and mental health? Because I know we did just hit some of those physical health concerns, but could you talk to us a little bit about the substance use and maybe mental health aspect of it as well? Yes, certainly. So, I mean, substance use disorder is extremely prevalent in that, that population for the same reasons of all the, you know, physical conditions that we were just talking about. So, lower SES, excuse me, socioeconomic status, when you're living in an impoverished community, it makes getting access to standardized healthcare that much more difficult. And so you don't even have, you know, I, I think especially recently, general population, we're much more aware of mental health. We're talking about it a lot more, right? Mental illness, mental health. Um, and I just don't think that those types of conversations are occurring in certain communities. And so when you don't even realize that there might be an issue at hand, you're not gonna seek out care for that. Um, and then let's not forget how stress 
ravages the body, right? I mean, when you're talking about the type of communities that people are generally stemming from, plus what incarceration does. I mean, incarceration in and of itself is an acute stressor. That initial shock into prison really messes with you. And then you're actually in prison for years and years and years. So you have this added kind of chronic stress that really, really affects your wear and tear on the body. And stress is, I'm working on a paper right now, and stress is certainly a confounder of both mental illness, excuse me, elevated mental illness and uh, potential physical health issues. So mental illness that is exacerbated during incarceration, of course, when that person gets out, whatever health problems they showed up to prison with, they're worse by the time they leave or they're unchanged, right? We're not doing anything rehabilitative inside that's helping them understand ways to deal with whatever mental health issues they might have. Um, and so what ends up happening is that's part of the reason why substance use disorders are at an elevated um, prevalence in this community, because what do you do when you're really stressed about something? What do you do when you're trying to avoid something you end up or you can end up um, using substances as a way to deal with it, as a way to handle the stress. I mean, I think that's, <laughs> that's a human response to stress, not just, you know, we're not just talking about drugs here, right? We're talking about alcohol. And when you hear some of the numbers of the mortality and morbidity when people are first coming out of prison, I mean, I don't know if you've talked about this with anyone yet, but there was a paper that came out in, I believe, 2007 that found that there was in the first two weeks, right after release, there was a 13 percent, um, excuse me, in those first two weeks, the authors found that it was a particularly dangerous time for homicide, suicide, and drug overdose. And that's because in those first two weeks, people who maybe weren't abusing substances or using any substances while they were incarcerated, you know, it's not, it's there, but it's not as prevalent, I would say, as in the general um, population. But when they get out, those first two weeks, they have a 13 times higher risk of death. So that's not just for, you know, overdosing, that's including homicide and suicide. And so even each additional year in prison we have found, even each additional year in prison has increased odds of death uh, by 16% or something like that. And another 2013 paper found that that also accompanied a two-year decline in life expectancy. And that's all related to prison in some way, shape, or form. I'm I said it in a recent paper that incarceration or being incarcerated is an accelerator of negative health. It is a predictor and it's an outcome of bad health. Um, so I think recognizing that substance use, mental illness, and physical health, they're all part and parcel of this kind of bigger issue of where people are coming from and why certain groups are more incarcerated. I mean, that's a whole different, <laughs> that's a whole different conversation, right? Um, but of course we need to recognize that as they're coming out, it's not like 
prison magically makes things better, they're coming out and all three of those kind of areas of health are worsened for sure. Most definitely. And I think like even to add to that conversation is just there's no doubt in whether they're even receiving reasonable enough care while they're incarcerated too because that's just another factor that is added on of I'm coming in with you know these chronic health conditions or these mental health concerns or these substance use issues and am I even getting the sufficient care while I'm incarcerated to you know maintain a a health status you know um and I, I don't know like I just think that and I know there's like a lot of debate about whether you know they are you know reasonable standard of care and I'm just wondering you know how does that play a role into their these outcomes or these negative health outcomes that maybe these individuals are experiencing if that I hope that question makes sense I think so so let me let me answer what I think it is and then you let me know if I missed it um I do want to say this one thing because I think it might elucidate a little bit of what you were just talking about is there is one paradoxical finding about prison's effects on health. And it's particularly for the subpopulation of Black men. Have you heard this yet? Maybe not, but I'll I'll explain a little bit. So a paper um, found, a recent, somewhat recent paper found that Black men in state prisons had a 57% lower mortality rate than their non-incarcerated counterparts, which is over a three-year study. And so I'm writing my dissertation and I'm looking into this because I'm like, what is happening here? And I think it kind of speaks to what you were just saying is there's a few reasons that we have been able to kind of say, well, what's the difference there? Um, One of them being prison provides shelter and meals and there's a highly structured environment and highly structured routines, which for some people, whether it's a mental illness or some other uh, situation, is kind of a stabilizing force. Um, And so that is helpful, right? And then you let them out, re-entry and and things are all over the place, which makes it so much harder to, you know, stay on track. Um, But particularly that that protective idea for Black men stems from that there is some protective form of, there's a protective factor basically from external causes of death, right? Car accidents violent encounters, right? Um, Additionally, there are some low socioeconomic status people who don't really have any consistent health. I mean, for a lot of them, again, this was kind of another shocking thing to read for a lot of them. Before heading to prison, they might not have ever received standard care or never seen a doctor. And this is even a bigger chunk for people um, when we're talking about oral and dental health. I mean, way fewer people have even seen a dentist before they end up incarcerated. Um, And then there's this idea of reduced access to alcohol and drugs on the inside. So in those first few weeks out again, um, you have people who, you know, end up shooting up what they used to shoot up or whatever, and it affects them in a completely different way than they were expecting it to. Um, so I thought that that was that, that paradoxical finding that for some Black men, prison can be a protective factor. That threw me, you know, when I was studying this. And I mean, the reasons make sense. Those are the mechanisms that have been thrown out. I don't know how much of them they've been able to actually 
you know, really support the findings for, but th those reasons have been around. So I don't, did I answer your question? <laughs> no, yeah, it, it does. And I have never heard of that. Like, and I do think that's a very interesting finding to see prison serve as a protective factor for, you know, black men. Um, and I'm, that's something I'm definitely going to have to go look up and just like read more about and dig into, because like, as all I know is all I know about is the, you know, the debate about whether people are receiving reasonable standard of care and whether, you know, prison is serving as a protective factor at all for anybody. Um, and we see that for some group that it is. Um, but yeah, there's still no doubt of like, when you still go into prison, conditions get worse. Um, and I don't know that that's just kind of, that's just kind of what happens because of the, you know, the state of prison, the environment, it's not the most sanitary. And then we recently, and then with COVID, that's a, that's a whole new world of, uh, trying to figure out health concerns and health needs. Uh, I see you, you, you have something to say there. So uh, <laughs> I want you to say it. I, I just, sorry, I, I got a little animated. Um, I, I'm, I'm nodding my head because everything you're saying is like spot on. Um, what I wanted to say was Prison is not therapeutic. I mean, for those of you who have been in a prison, it is drab and gray, and it is the opposite of what you would expect anything therapeutic to be, right? You go into a, your therapist's office, and it's much more soft, and that's not at all how prison is, right? And then going back to the idea of stress, because I don't think we talk about stress enough in incarceration and um, upon release because it's a, a constant, right? And so it's almost like you can't tease out what's really at play there um, because stress is, like I said, a constant. And what I think we don't anticipate well enough is because it's a constant, we don't really, we don't look at it. We don't we don't use it in our models, you know, in our statistical models when we're trying to figure out, okay, what's really going on here? Um, so yeah, that's, that's all I wanted to say that, that as an acute stressor and as a chronic stressor, like when I started reading into how badly stress really like messes with your body, there's no, and it's the constant feeling of, I can be victimized at any time, right? There's, you're constantly witnessing violence. You're constantly under the threat of violence, right? There's riots, there's all these things that are so opposite of what someone who's really trying to better themselves should be, um, should have in their life. And then we release people and we're like, Hey, go be, do it all, do everything. Right. Oh, and you should also be healthy while you're at it. I mean, it, the challenges and barriers that we place on people are so insurmountable that even as someone who has not you know, spent any time in prison aside from interviewing people. Um, I couldn't even handle all of that. Like there's just no, it, it's, it's a ridiculous list of things. And then on top of that, we're like, oh, also your health, your health matters, right? And, and the public health cares about that. And oh gosh, it's so bad. <laughs> no, I, I definitely agree. And like we, we've talked about quite a bit of like, 
just health concerns. Like we we went through sexually transmitted diseases, just you know, briefly hitting these things. Tuber oh Lord, why did I just almost say that word wrong? Um tuberculosis, um, <laughs> HIV prevalence, you know, just mental health concerns and substance use. We've, you know, we've talked about these different things and this is a lot to battle. And then on top of that, we have a thing that is often neglected or what you're bringing up is stress. And I guess like as someone who has never been a part of this process, or like you said, has also never been incarcerated. I imagine stress is at the highest when you're trying to you're trying to get yourself together. You're trying to get back out here, and but you're faced with all these different things. Um, and I, and I think another kind of where I'm going with this is just like other health issues. I was trying to get like a broad recap of that, but trying to move towards these other health issues that are also being seen in prisons. And I think I'm just talking about aging. You mentioned that earlier. Um, I know that people are aging a lot more or at a more pivotal rate in prison now. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, the aging, the, the idea of aging in the prison population is another super, it's interesting, but it's also very scary, right? Because, because of our war on drugs and our uh, lengthening of time behind bars, I mean, you have an older population in prison and, and they're calling it the graying of the prison population. I believe that they're saying that by 2030, a third or more of the population is going to be considered elderly. Um, a, a third or more of the prison population, excuse me, is gonna be considered elderly. I think as a society, we're, we're getting older, right? There's medical advances and things that, that are helping us um, stay alive longer. Uh, but for people who are incarcerated, they actually say a person is considered elderly while they're incarcerated at age 45 or 50, right? Whereas on the outside, that's at least 50, 55 if you want to get that senior movie discount, you know? Um, so that's not what's happening in there. They're, they're being considered elderly at a much, much earlier time. And it's, again, disability-related stuff, too. We know that almost half of older people have a disability that are incarcerated. Well, if you don't have proper ADA, you know, all these mechanisms that would be helpful for someone who's older to get around, it's it really is becoming a problem. I show a video to my institutional correction students and they come out crying out of that class after seeing what people who look like their grandparents who can't even feed themselves in prison anymore. It's just like, it's it's a tough one. And I don't know if this is getting too far off, but compassionate release, I was under the impression that during COVID, and you kind of mentioned COVID, during the pandemic, I was hopeful. I was actually on a master's thesis looking at compassionate release during COVID. You know, we were kind of under the impression that whether it be federal or at the state level, that they would be granting more compassionate release for people who, and nope, the paper or the thesis found basically nothing. I mean, even though there were thousands more, I want to say, at least at the federal level, uh, applications for compassionate release, most of them were denied. Um, so that's kind of, that's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow too, because it's like, what's the point, right? We know about the age crime curve. We know that most people desist by a certain age. And so unless they're, you know, 
being violent in their 90s, what what's the point of keeping someone there that long, right? Um, that does nothing for us as society. We are spending more of our tax doll. Like it just, there's there's literally no reason. Um, and I think the other, oh, go ahead. And I was like, but I'm sure they can find about 50 million to justify why. Um, right. <laughs> but we're not, we don't have to go there. <laughs> right, right. Um, I was just going to say that I think the other aspect of health that we don't talk about, I mean, some of my work is looking into this and I love the work that looks in this is social health. Social health is so important. We are social beings. We need that. Um, and that's, I think, where some of the literature on um, restricted status housing or solitary, right? Um, without that social connection, we kind of lose our faculties. We don't, we're not the same people. Um, and so I think the idea of making sure that social health is as, as good as it can be, right? You, you need those supportive people when you get out, whether it's financially supportive or just to hear you gripe and vent about how hard it is to get a job after you have a felony on your record, you know, without having those kind of supportive people in our lives, that also affects your health. Um, my dissertation basically was looking at that, that dissertate, uh, excuse me, <laughs> social support and your social network and the ability of those people to stay in your life until you get on your feet. Without that, you do have worse physical health. You do have worse mental health. You do have an increase in substance use. So it's like, there's so many facets of health that we talk broadly about in other areas of research, but we're not quite there yet when it comes to um, incarceration, looking at incarceration, health and reentry. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that, you know, a little bit later, we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And I, cause I really want you to expand on that and what that means and what that looks like. But I think right now we've talked about like health, what it is, what it looks like. We've conceptualized it. And I think right now we need to probably just tell the people the, so what, who cares? Like, why should we care about this at all? Like, why does it matter? Um, so essentially, I guess my question is, I think one of the things that you pointed out earlier, which is very important, is a lot of times when we look at um, any issue related to people that are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, we think it's an individual problem. Um, like that's something, you know, that's their issue. It has nothing to do with me. And we don't really realize like the impact of their release, uh, the impact of the problems that they're bringing into our neighborhoods, the problems that they're bringing into our families, like. How, what impact that has on us. So I guess essentially my question is, what are these long-term consequences for us as a society um, when, you know, when people are released with like, and they have these chronic health issues um, and things like that? So good question. Um, public health as it is defined is essentially promoting the welfare of the entire population, right? Ensuring that the entire population feels protected, um, that there's minimal spread of infectious diseases, there's minimal environmental hazards, and that we can ensure that everyone, every single person has access to safe and quality healthcare. 
when we are in a state like that, I mean, there are countries worldwide that, that essentially have that. When you are in a state like that, the entirety of society functions better, period. Um, but if we want to talk about certain appeals to the public in terms of why they should care, I would say first, the public health benefit. Um, infectious diseases, they come back around. I mean, they're infectious, right? They get spread, <laughs> that's, the, that's the whole point. Um, and so if we have, and this was a fear actually, I wanna say in the late 80s, early 90s about HIV AIDS, that they actually had, I remember being in a prison, we were visiting a prison during my master's and I remember them showing us a completely separate area for people who were HIV positive. And it's like, at the time, right, things were different when it came to HIV, but nevertheless, those things do come out again, right? Any infectious disease that a, a person takes in with them to prison, the high likelihood is coming out with them. 95% of people are released. So that is one way that you can probably appeal to the larger public benefit of infectious diseases spread inevitably. So that would be a healthier society overall to not have as many infectious diseases um, overall. Public safety. If someone is at their best, if someone is healthy, if someone feels like they have been successful in reentry, whichever way we want to define that, I mean, I know that most people define it as not recidivating. I disagree with that. I know we have to use that term sometimes, but it's more than that, right? It's the whole of the person being fulfilled, being a productive citizen. When they are at their best, the rest of society is at their best. And we don't, the fear surrounding public safety, I think can easily be manipulated. And if people who are coming out and feel like, I don't know, I think that I could have a better conversation with my neighbor across the street if I told them, yeah, this person is doing great, they're da 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 without saying that they were formerly incarcerated because that shouldn't be, you know, a, a reason that anyone thinks differently about someone, but um, there's that public safety benefit too, that if, if those people are coming out are feeling better, then they're probably less likely to recidivate and you're probably less likely to be a victim in their recidivity problem, right? Um, appeal to healthcare. <clears throat> when, one of the findings that we know is when people are released, they're more likely to use emergency rooms. They're more likely to use emergency hospitalization than others, um, than the general population. And, and part of that, I think, is they're not used to seeing standardized care. They're not used to preventive medicine. And so in a lot of situations, they wait until it gets so, so bad that they have to go to the emergency room. They have to go to the hospital. So making sure that they have preventive care and that they're doing better as a public benefit, it would be better that our, you know, our community area hospitals it'd be less taxing on them and less money, right? So this is the other the other thing is for fiscally conservative people, especially taxes, right? If there's fewer people incarcerated because they're not recidivating, recidivating and they're not going through this cycle of recidivism, reentry, reincarceration, if they're not in that same cycle again, we can have more money for things like education, Right. And when you funnel more money in education, especially at a young age, we can see these public health benefits 
exponentially. Um, when recidivism rates are high, we use whatever scarce economic resources we have that could be used elsewhere on correction, right? We don't have a choice. We have to feed these people and they're costing, you know, 30 grand a year or something like that. And it depends on what state you're in, of course. Um, but our spending on corrections has risen so much that I think if you needed to kind of convince someone on, on the more conservative side of the aisle, you point to the money, right? Follow the money. That's, you know, I think uh, a better a better way to get them on board. Um, for instance, I was just reading, oh, for every $1 spent on education, we're saving about $4 in reincarceration later on. It seems so obvious to me. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I think that answered that question. Yeah, no, it does. And I think one thing that I would like to add that I was just thinking about, like as you were going through them, it's just like uh, having, being able to have better healthcare. And I think, I know there's a lot of research out there. It's just the outcome of reentry is better too. It's just when someone, when their healthcare needs are being satisfied or they're not having to be overly concerned about their healthcare needs, they're able to maintain that employment that they probably wouldn't have been able to do if they had these chronic healthcare conditions that were not being treated. They're able to maintain housing. They're like, there's a lot of sustainability in their life. Um, and that contributes to those reentry outcomes and seeing people be successful and stable. Um, so I just I just was thinking about that as you were talking about it um, and going through those things of just like, no, these are very valid. All of these are very valid. And, and if we had greater health care or if we could attend to those needs, we could also have better reentry outcomes. We could see more success. We could see more stability. Certainly. That's absolutely the case. And let's not forget we're not just talking about the incarcerated people when they're coming out and talking about their health. Every other person that's connected to them is directly impacted as well. I mean, uh, Wang et al, I'm gonna forget what year it is, but what year the paper came out, but that paper was talking about how if you have a partner as a woman, a black woman specifically, if you have a partner incarcerated, you have a higher likelihood of being obese, having a heart attack or a stroke, being in poor health, having a um, any type of cardiovascular health issues. There's another paper that came out a few years ago also that's talking about partner incarceration and women on the outside substance use, right? They're more likely to cope using substances because now they have so much more of a burden to deal with on the outside. If they have kids or whatever it might be that now they are raising on their own. I mean, these are the other things that we don't talk about that, that health people on the outside are also coping with their loved ones being incarcerated. And that is, I think a burgeoning area of research. It's, it's just now starting to get started, but it's really hard. Again, it's, one of those things, it's really hard to really pinpoint exactly. It's a chicken and egg problem, right? What came first, you know, that that person's general uh, dispositions or general habits or general ways of, of living their life? Or is it incarceration? Can we say it is prison that is affecting not only the people who are reentering, but their loved ones? 
Right. And I definitely don't have the answer to that. But I do know one thing for sure is like in if people haven't understood it by this point, very clearly of that these chronic health conditions spread these, you know, the very health concerns that they have, they come into your communities, they come into your families, they come into your neighborhoods and they cause disruption. They create disadvantage and they, they, yeah, that's, I don't know. I don't even know any other way to describe it as far as of like just disruption and, um, and disadvantage, like they have an impact on where we are living and who we are interacting with. So it's very important for us to care about healthcare needs, not just for the sake of the individual who's incarcerated or who's coming out, but for ourselves. Um, and I think that leads us to our, you know, our next topic of what do we do? What are the suggestions? Like, what are people proposing? Great question. I wish I had a clear, <laughs> perfect answer for you. Of course I don't. Um, the correctional system and the public health care system need to talk. I mean, I think the, the first thing, if we're really trying to improve the lives of the people who are reentering, whether it's due to us throwing them in prison or, or things that came before, we need that continuity of care, right? Especially for the people who I was just saying have never had standardized or institutionalized healthcare before. They're seeing a doctor for the first time. They're realizing that they have this ailment and that ailment and we're getting this med for this disease that they might have. When they're out, I mean, I, I've heard of some state prison systems handing out your, if you have like prescription meds for two months, three months worth. If that person then doesn't follow up, which I think the literature says they tend to not follow up, if they don't, then that's, you know, that's another, <laughs> another thing there, right? Um, and so without that continuity of care, without a, an actual connection between those people's community health care and what we're seeing in prison, like without that connection, you're not ensuring that people are living their best and healthy lives. Um, because the correctional system just cares about the correctional system. All they care about is while you are in there, we're going to put a Band-Aid on everything as much as we can. I mean, you can see this when it comes to oral health care. If there's a problem with the tooth, guess what? They're pulling it, right? They're not going to go in and do a root canal or anything else that might actually save the tooth. They're pulling it, which this is another topic that we can get into in a different day, but someone who has a lot of missing teeth. Talk about the stigma when you're going to try and find a job when you're re-entering. I mean, that's just another layer of like how health has a direct impact on re-entry later on. Um, so anyways, I think that the, the first thing we can do is ensuring that there's some continuity of care, that there's some connection. I mean, we live in a technological society. Why is it so hard to connect health records. It, it, it is not, I mean, my doctor, if I'm going to go to this doctor and then I'm going to go to a specialist for this, they're quickly just sending all my information, right? I don't understand why we can't take someone's social security and connect something like that. Like it just seems so, and I think again, it would help with the stigma, 
And stigma is another thing when, when you're thinking about stigma or racism or any discrimination. When people see you and they have a, an instinct in that moment or they have a, an idea of who, you, who they think you are, they're not going to give you the time of day. They're going to already expect that this is what you were incarcerated. So this is, you know, I, I don't think highly of you. I'm not going to hire you. I'm not going to whatever. Um, so anyways, uh, again, I do this tangent thing, but <laughs> continuity of care. I think if we did that first, I think it would open a lot more doors for ways in which therapeutic environments in the community can bolster the ways in which people who are coming out need that health, um, their overall health tended to. Did I answer your question? <laughs> no, you, you did. And I okay. will tell you, I appreciate the tangents. Of, it just, it's an expression of your passion. And I love that. Um, but no, I agree. Like continuity of care is so important. And it is an area I have just been like, how are we how have we not been doing this already like like you said we are well too advanced in the world to not be able to just send a file through like i can literally just open my ipad and everything's just synced together like that's how advanced we are like it, it should be that simple absolutely I, I think that's a very important Thing, though like continuity of care and collaboration with some of these other agencies to kind of target some of the dimensions that we may be missing um and there's not a lot of follow-up I, I just remember just from my personal experience with my grandpa like nobody came I mean parole officer came to the house um because <laughs> it was your job but just like there was no um there was no follow-up in the way that I thought there should be follow-up um, to help him really get to where he needed to be. Um, so I do think, I think that's a very important aspect and I'm so glad that you brought that up. And I know that you have done some work of your own on like this kind of like holistic view. Um, and I was wondering if you could just share with us a little bit about that and like, what what does that even mean and what it looks like? <clears throat> yes. Um... So I wanted to write this paper. It's, it's a, going to come out soon. And I was thinking about health and reentry and how we can best really like see how health is impacting the reentry process. And I started to look into like, okay, well, what do others, we have such a narrow limited view or scope of, of what we consider health, right? We, when As criminologists, when we're looking at that, right? It's mental illness that's always rising to the top. Uh, certain things like physical health functioning, depression. We look at very specific PTSD, very specific aspects um, of health. And I was starting to think through this a little bit and I'm like, there's so much more to health. I mean, I teach an incarceration and health grad class and we dove into, you know, so many more of those definitions. For instance, the World Health Organization's definition of holistic health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and it's not merely the absence of disease. And that was profound to me. Oh, it's not the absence of disease. I would say I'm a healthy person, but I have, you know, if I have a bunch of diseases, like I, 
I thought that if you didn't have disease, you were considered a healthy person. But no, it's it's much more than the baseline. And if the World Health Organization is calling that holistic health, then you better believe I'm not going to go against that. Um, and so we looked at my co-author and I looked at um, substance SAMHSA. I always say this wrong: Substance Abuse Administration, Mental Health Services, something like that. Um, and they talk about holistic health being encompassing eight different dimensions. I was like, oh, they consider mental and emotional health, which is stuff like self-care, managing stress, physical health, which would be considered nutrition, getting physical activity in, sleep. Substance use would also fall into physical Social, as I mentioned, social networks, your social support, time out with friends, right? Being a social person. Occupational. So this is stuff like work-life balance. Do you feel like you have um, career accomplishments? Financial. So this is actual work. Um, your level of debt, your retirement. I mean, when you start to think about those things that are affecting your health, stress plays a big role in financial um, health, I would think spiritual do you meditate what are your values and beliefs do you feel strongly about them having that kind of connection with your inner soul matters considered health um, intellectual having hobbies getting an education as far as you'd like to get into an education your brain health um, and then environmental health is their kind of last domain of health so this is being outside lots of outdoor time being in a place with greenery um, and so we kind of took all of those ideas and we're like, okay, how can we apply this in the reentry setting? So using the Lone Star Project, which we were project managers on and it ended up being my dissertation project, um, we just started going through like what could be considered physical health, occupational health, financial, et cetera. And we kind of regressed them on re-arrest three years later. So we had re-arrest for Texas. This was 800 men who were released in 2016, 2017. We spoke to them about one week before they were released um, and asked them all types of these questions. So anyways, after many a regression model, um, it turns out that the aspects of mental and emotional health, social health, occupational health, spiritual health, and environmental health particular pieces within each of those areas were predictive of rearrest three years later. So like I said earlier, it's not just about this person isn't rearresting. So a true successful reentry process is much larger than that. And I think that if we start to look at all these different pieces to the puzzle, we'll have a much, we can zoom out, right? Once, once we've looked at all of these different aspects of someone's life, we can zoom out and say, okay, we need to focus more resources on this part of their life, or we need to focus more resources on this part of their life, or even as a tool for themselves, right? The original SAMHSA um, ideas we use, they're called the eight domains, eight dimensions of wellness, excuse me. They have a worksheet that's attached to it so that you can like sit there and, you know, and almost like a little a tool. If we could create something like that for prison, you're already doing intake. Why not have a few other aspects like this, especially when they're about to be released, right? When, when you're getting together all their reentry supports and reentry things that are important that we know, 
why not have them take this with them? Even if you in the correctional sphere aren't the person doing it, give them the opportunity, give them the chance to be able to kind of take it all in. Like, where are the aspects of my life that I should be focusing a little bit more energy on? Um, Reentry is such a challenging time period. I think that any little thing that shows that we can be supportive to people who are, I mean, there's 2000 people released a day, right? Like when you, when you start to think about those numbers, it's like, if there's even one little thing that we can give them to give them the agency that they can help better decipher what's best to focus on, why not do that? It's, again, it's so easy. It's just, I think that's what frustrates me about this research is there's just so many easy things that we can just little checkbox. It's not going to take too much time or effort or money. And we don't do it. And it's going to keep me in a job forever, but I don't like it. Right. We don't want to work forever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I think that is like, that's great. And I think that is like a, a really good place to where we need to start looking, looking at individuals as a whole and these different dimensions um, and seeing where are they needing more uh, help in and kind of emphasizing those like, uh, you know, that's just one thing I've just learned just being growing as a clinician is trying to understand somebody holistically and like all the different like you said, all the different dimensions that come with them, because they all contribute in a way. And and if we search hard enough and we put in enough work, we'll figure out which one it is that needs more support and that needs more help. So I do. I love that. And, you know, I'm looking forward to like the paper coming out and, you know, people reading it and hopefully it can get like we can get some individuals, some higher up individuals, well higher than us to um, <laughs> to get on that and like really start looking into this perspective because I think it's so important. It's, it's so important. And I think like the way the world is moving anyways, a lot of people are moving towards more holistic approaches anyways. So just jump on board, criminal justice system. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we can do this, everybody. <laughs> Like we really can, and um, you know, I'm just looking forward to it. And I, I appreciate you like coming on here and like sharing all the information that you gave us, talking about your paper, and just talking about health in general. It's such an important area, and I don't know how many times I'm going to say that, but health is important, you guys. And so, I guess my last question I want to ask you is, if you could tell our audience one thing. You want to leave here with one thing about the topic that we've talked about, healthy reentry. What would it be? Oh, you got me. That's a good one. One thing to remember about health and reentry. Uh, I'll say this: ninety-five percent of people who are incarcerated today will be out eventually. They will become your neighbors. They will become your colleagues. They'll become your friends, mentors, mentees, etc. Wouldn't it be best if those people were at their best? Wouldn't it be best if we could promote public health for everyone? Wouldn't we want the whole of society, the whole of America to feel healthy? As, as anyone who might love their country, like, don't you think that that would be the, 
I just, I am imagining this like beautiful, pristine, you know, future of America where people who have spent time incarcerated aren't, you know, looked down upon or anything and that everyone can be a healthy, holistic um, and, and have this holistic view of health. So I, th I think that's it. I think that recognizing listeners, you should recognize that every single person or most people who end up incarcerated are going to come out. And when they do realize that prisons, even though they feel like islands a lot of the time out there in the middle of nowhere that we don't really hear much about and we don't really do much about, they're not islands. What happens in prisons and what happens prior to prisons to people affects them later on. And it'll affect them when they're re-entering society as well. We should do everything in our power to minimize the recidivism rate. It's best for our entire society. So why not start with health? Why not start with public health and incarceration talking for once and leading us into a place where the whole of society can be healthy? That sounds great. Like that, <laughs> that I really think that was a amazing, like, just like recap of this is what it is and this is what we should be doing. And I appreciate it so much. Um, and I thank you guys for listening as always. And if you are interested in learning more about Dr. Fami, please follow her on Twitter. Her Twitter uh, name will be listed in the description box as long as her, not as long, I'm sorry, as well <laughs> as her professional pages. Um, and as always, Please push the subscribe button for more life in order to get our notifications and follow us on Instagram at More Life the Reentry Podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in with us today.